Hi, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verses 10 to 19. We have two weeks left in Haggai this week and next week, um, and then uh, we're going to get going in the Gospel of John again, and that will see us through Easter. Let us read together. Haggai 2, 10 to 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. So with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. But then, now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray together. Dear God, we come today again hungry for your word, eager to meet together, to hear from you. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use your word to do a work among us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm not much of a, a musical kind of a guy, but a few years ago, I went sort of begrudgingly with my wife to watch one in cinema um, and afterwards had to sheepishly admit that I absolutely loved it. In fact, it became for me my favorite movie of that year. It was the movie, The, the Greatest Showman. Has anyone seen that? Who's enjoyed that movie like I enjoyed it? Who was surprised to have enjoyed that movie like I was surprised? It's uh, uh, loosely based on the life of the American promoter, P.T. Barnum, and he had a dream in this movie. They came, he came from humble beginnings, and his dream was to make it as a showman, and it's a dream that he shared with his wife, and so they dreamt and looked forward into the future, and he did exactly that. From his humble beginnings, he grew in popularity, um, grew in fame, grew in wealth, but soon his shared dream with his wife was left in the dust of his personal ambition. So we see how he admires or desires admiration of, of the high society, 
and so doing almost leaves his friends and his family behind until when the movie culminates, everything has come crashing down, literally a fire has destroyed what he's built and he's sitting in the rubble like a metaphor of a, his life that's been broken down by pride and he comes to a realization and that's that his family should have been the dream all along. Their love is all that he needs, not the praise of high society, not glory from the higher-ups. And he had almost alienated the ones that, that truly mattered. And so it culminates with the song, From Now On, sung by Hugh Jackman. He sings these words, I drank champagne with kings and queens. The, pol <laughs> the politicians praised my name. But those are someone else's dreams, the pitfalls of the man I became. For years and years I chased their cheers, the crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here, I remember who all this was for. And he sings, and from now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. From now on, what waited till tomorrow starts tonight. And let this promise in me start, like an anthem in my heart from now on. In this moment, Barnum is seeking to solidify something in his heart, this realization that he's come to. He wants something else to be the anthem of, of his heart, something that drives him forward, and he promises now not to again lose sight of what really matters. And this, if this all sounds really cheesy, I think it just got me in the feels. I think it was my life stage as a father with two young boys realizing I don't need to chase the praise of men. If I have God in my corner and my family in my corner, my calling is simple. Don't be distracted, just be faithful. Be faithful to the simple task that God and your family would have your heart and know your devotion. Haggai comes to the people of God, I believe with a similar aim. He wants there to be a, an anthem in their heart, something set in their heart. This is the last day of his short ministry, the last recorded day of his four-month ministry. After this day, this word that we're hearing today and the word we're gonna see next week, we don't hear from Haggai again. And he comes to them after they've begun again to rebuild the temple of the Lord to help them solidify in their hearts this anthem. Our devotion is to God. We want God. If you remember, they've been back in the land for 18 years, and after building for a little while in the beginning, they stopped building for 16 years. They allowed discouragement, and they allowed complacency in their spiritual lives to get the better of them. But through Haggai's preaching, God used his preaching to bring about a repentance amongst the people of God and they begin to build again. And so I believe Haggai is coming to them on this last day of his ministry. They've begun the work, but he wants to solidify something in their hearts, a courage and a hope that they will need to fight whatever future discouragement comes along. Haggai knows the importance of the heart in what they're doing. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. If their hearts are not devoted to the Lord, they will not get the work done. 
And even if somehow they do, it won't matter because it wouldn't be pleasing to the Lord. So he reiterates a common message. We saw twice in chapter one, he said, consider your ways. Again, he uses the same word now in chapter two. And it literally means set this in your heart. Set it in your heart. And he says, from this day on, mark this day in your calendar. Let devotion be the anthem of your heart from now on. Haggai's message is important for us today because what you set your heart upon will be the determining factor in your life, whether or not you walk in the blessing that God has on offer. And for the church, it's a timely message. In a day where the devotion of many is being challenged, we are called today to take seriously the state of our hearts. So how does Haggai do this? How does he hit his target? How does he get to the heart? I believe he comes with three things. Firstly, in verses 10 to 14, he comes with a a lesson on the problem of unacceptable worship. So there's a kind of worship that is not acceptable. Secondly, in verses 15 to 17, he comes with a reminder of God's uncompromising love. And finally, in verses 18 to 19, he comes with a promise of God's unmerited mercy. Let's look firstly, number one, a lesson about unacceptable worship. He comes like a master teacher and he speaks to them where they're at in terms of what they understand. He comes with questions related to the law so that he could take God's law and apply it to their current situation so that it would serve as a gauge for their hearts. His first of two questions is in verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priests answer and say, no, it does not. Now you might be hearing that and be thinking, this is strange. Why why has he gone here? What on earth is he talking about? Haggai is referring to the Levitical code, the principles of ceremonial cleanness and defilement, uncleanness. To be used in their ritual worship items, uh, items of clothing like the priest's robe and animals used for the sacrifice would be consecrated to the Lord, set apart as holy unto the Lord. But if the priest was walking along with his robe and maybe with the holy meat on his person and his robe touched something else, something normal in everyday life, the question was, does that item also then become holy? The answer is no, it does not. The the point is simple. The holiness of the consecrated item is non-transferable. It doesn't make other items holy by contact. Holiness in this sense is not contagious. If we were to put this principle in modern terms, let me ask you this question. Do the external forms of your worship, like singing, giving when you come into church, praying to God, preaching or listening to preaching, do those things, your participation in those things, make you holy? Do they make you a consecrated Christian? And the answer is no, they they do not. Just because you're standing in a garage doesn't make you a mechanic. Or just because you're wearing a, a lab coat doesn't make you a doctor. Just because you're a Baptist doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you have come to church doesn't make your worship acceptable. 
Holiness is a matter of a decided devotion in the heart. And that devotion works itself out in obedience and external forms of worship. No one can see that in your heart. No one can do that for you. Singing next to somebody who is devoted to the Lord doesn't make you holy. Sitting under good Bible teaching doesn't make you holy. Living in the same house as somebody who is devoted to the Lord doesn't make you holy. Young people, the faith of your parents does not save you or make you holy. Haggai would have us check our hearts with this question. Am I content with external formality that is disconnected from an internal reality? Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said, Formality is more light than life, knowing more than you trust. It is more notion than motion, understanding things but never being moved by them. It is more head than heart. It is more outside than inside. It it is more leaves than fruit. It is more shadow than substance. And Haggai's second question in verse 13, he asks, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? To which the priests answer, yes, it does become unclean. So this is a contrast, isn't it? While holiness is non-transferable, that ritual defilement is. If you touch something that is unclean, you yourselves become unclean, Haggai says, like a a dead body. This teaching is that the, the unholy, or the holy touching the unholy doesn't make the unholy holy, but the holy touching the defiled makes the holy unclean. If I give you an analogy, if you take a glass of water and you um, put a drop of poison in that water, does the purity of the water make the poison less poisonous? Or does the poison contaminate the drink? Or if in today's terms, if, you f- if I forget to wear my mask and I cough in your face, does your health make me um, healthy? Or do I pass on the virus to you? The point is simple for us. If my heart is defiled, my heart is not set on God and on the glory of God, then that defilement touches everything that I do. You cannot separate worship from the way that you live your life. And every effort is defiled if your heart doesn't really belong to the Lord. So with these questions related to the law, Haggai now goes straight for their hearts and he reminds them of a problem that they have, the temple in ruins in their midst. Verse 14, so Haggai answered and said, so it is with the people and with this nation before me declares the Lord and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So if you go to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 3, we know that when they came back to the land, before they even started rebuilding the temple, what did they do first? They built the altar of God. And it came from a good place in their hearts, a place of zeal. No, we can't wait until this temple is finally rebuilt before we make sacrifices to the Lord. And so sacrifices were going on while they were building with this enthusiasm. But then trouble comes. Enthusiasm dies out. 
and they become unbothered by the temple and ruins in their midst. And that heart state of being unbothered by what is around them, the, the place of God's presence among them, the place of God's glory in their midst, the apathy towards that was indicative of a, a heart problem. The sacrifices went on year after year. The rituals and the feasts went on year after year after year. And God is saying, I, I had your sacrifices, but I didn't have your hearts. And so those sacrifices were defiled. Joyce Baldwin poignantly says in her, her commentary on this book, the ruined temple, a witness to sins of negligence, stood like a corpse in the midst. And the sacrifices were defiled. Making sacrifices and performing rituals year after year with the temple in ruins around them is like what we see so often in the church even today. Uh, people who fill their lives with religion and want the benefits of religion, but really there's no desire for God. No desire to know Him. Alec Marcia in his commentary says, Altar ceremonies without the house was religion without God, seeking benefits but shunning a relationship with the Lord from whom the benefits were sought. But in returning and starting to build again, it was a declaration that they were making. God matters most to us. And this is what Haggai would have them never forget. This book is a heavy book for us, is it not? Beware, Haggai says. Do not come into this place and do not sing the songs with your lips if your heart is far from the Lord. If all you're doing is paying lip service to a God that you have no care for, do not defile the worship of a sovereign God with a life that is totally inconsistent with your profession of faith. Acceptable worship is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's not just the fulfilling of a duty. It's an obedience that flows from a heartfelt response to who he is and a desire to know the joy of his presence. It's the belief that's captured in the words of the psalmist, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. Church, now is the time to check our hearts Today is the day where we ask, who do I love first? Where does my devotion lie? God doesn't need our efforts. It's not like he needs us. He wants people who will build his house because their delight is in him, because they want to know him and be close to him, because they trust him, because they've put all of their eggs in one basket. They obey not for material prosperity, not to use the Lord for other blessings, not to be well thought of, not to assuage some sense of guilt, but because their deep desire is this, to walk humbly with their God. And unless there is a sincere seeking after God in the camp, any rebuilding happens in vain. 
Now, God didn't leave them, right? We saw the repentance. God didn't leave them in this rigor mortis state of apathy, indifference towards the presence of God. God loved them with a pursuing love, an uncompromising love that breaks so that it can mend, that blights so that it can heal. So look at number two, a reminder of God's uncompromising love in verses 15 to 17. Now then, he says, consider, literally take it to heart, set it in your heart from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you with all the, and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. This message on his final day of ministry is a reminder of what he had said to them on his first day of ministry. Do you remember? You decorate your houses while my house lies in ruins. And you gather and gather and gather and are not satisfied because whatever you gather, I blew away. And here he says, I was the one who struck you. There's a familiarity to these words. They come from Amos chapter four. And he's linking back to that day, centuries before. Amos prophesied before either kingdom, the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, had been conquered. And what he's doing is he's saying, we've, we've been down this path before. Set it in your hearts today. Settle this matter. Will you choose devotion to me with divine blessing? Or will you forsake me and experience divine blighting? Now, when we come to this, we need to not misunderstand this passage. This is, God is no pagan deity throwing his toys out the cot because they won't rebuild his house. He doesn't need their sacrifices as from a people who would just get their God off their back. He's not there before them to have them manipulate him for a good crop. He is the God of glory who will not allow his children to settle for empty or for poisonous wells, but who will do whatever he needs to do in their lives until they drink forever from living water. I think I've, I've told you before of one of my favorite Shane and Shane songs. I hope in the last year I haven't told you more than once. <laughs> the song, So You Slay Me written in a, a time in one of their lives of great difficulty. And for me, it's just a great song when I'm struggling with something or facing trial. It borrows from Job and it borrows from this passage as well. I come, God, I come, return to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You strike down to bind me up. You say you do it all in love, that I might know you and your suffering. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need, because that's the point. Now you may sit here and say, nah, brah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to have that. You may resent a God who would use suffering to draw your hearts away from sin and to himself. But you don't resent that if you felt the horror of the alternative, if you thought of the, the alternative of apathy towards the Lord, 
leading to a refusal to surrender to him, to submit to him, a refusal to be reconciled to the Lord that leads to an eternity of loss in hell. Child of God, it should be a source of praise in your life that God would do this, that he loves you too much to leave you in your sin. What does Hebrews 12 verse 6 say? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And Haggai's message is out of mercy, he refuses to leave you, refuse to, to bless them in their wrong pursuits and their half-hearted devotion and love, he blew it all away. Because this is the truth. Without hearts that are consecrated and abandoned to Christ, you cannot experience the spiritual blessing that God has for you. If you want to be spiritually miserable all your life, profess Christ as Lord, but then seek to sit on the throne yourself. Profess Christ as Lord and then be mastered by other things. We heard this truth from Jesus last year in his message to the disciples in the upper room. In John 14, 20, 21, uh, 21, 23, sorry, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now we approach this passage understanding that not all suffering is punishment from God for specific sin. But we know as Christians that every suffering that we go through has the same purpose, making a home in our hearts for Christ alone. That's his goal. Charles Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Is God seeking your attention today? Are his arrows aimed at your heart? The story is told in the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones about a, a Welshman who had come to a place of absolute destitution and hopelessness in his life. He had made poor decisions, left the wife of his youth for another woman. Ultimately, that woman who replaced his wife left him, he made poor financial decisions and was bankrupt, financially destitute and hopeless, he decided he was going to end his life. So he, he went to the Westminster Bridge in London and while he was there preparing to, to jump, he heard the tolling of Big Ben signifying that the hour of worship had come and it caused him to remember back upon uh, the preaching in we Westminster Chapel of Martin Lloyd-Jones. So he thought, what can harm if I go one more time? He went one more time to hear Dr. Lloyd-Jones preach before he thought he would take his life. And as he, he, he made that walk to Westminster Chapel, and he came to the chapel when the pastoral prayer was being said. Lloyd-Jones would often pray for the sick and for those who were struggling and needed encouragement. But in this prayer, he prayed something that was a little bit different for him, but he prayed the words, and these are the very words that this man apparently heard as he was walking into the chapel. God, have mercy on the backslider. And these words must have hit him. On this day, he was restored and came to faith 
and he lived the rest of his life in commitment to Christ. But it was right at his moment in the abyss, the point of absolute hopelessness that the grace of God came to him and touched his life. In his mercy, this is what God does. He pursues us, he goes to the depths, and from hopelessness he calls us forth. This is all of our stories. So number three, in verses 18 to 19, we see a promise of God's unmerited mercy. There is a problem so far unaddressed in this passage. Verse 14, he says, your sacrifices are defiled. What you offer there is defiled. So what are they to do? The temple is in ruins around them. They have no way under the law to make themselves ceremonially clean and so offer right sacrifices before the Lord. How do you purge yourself of defilement if the very sacrifices that you offer are themselves defiled? You almost expect Haggai to come with this encouragement. Well done, you've made a good start. Now carry on, rebuild the temple so that once the temple is rebuilt, you can offer sacrifices there again and remove your defilement and then I will bless you. But that's not what the passage says. Verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the foundation since the, uh, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, he says, is the seed yet in the barn? So this day, we know, would have been mid-September. We can calculate to the day pretty much because of the way that Haggai is dating in his book. This would be after the seed was sown for a new harvest. And they've come off the back of bad harvests and hardship and sowing these seeds. What hope do they have while the temple is still in ruins? What are they going to get? They have no clue what the harvest will bring. And he says, is the seed yet in the barn? In other words, this next harvest and the seed that it produces, is it yet in the barn? In verse 19, indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day I will bless you. God has marked off this day in his calendar. Not after the temple has been rebuilt, but from the day when their hearts had changed and their hearts revealed a deep desire for God to dwell in their midst. They desire now the presence of God with no hope under the law to remove their ritual defilement. All that they can do is throw themselves upon the mercy of God. But in their camp, there's no more seeking after the benefits of the Creator without love. For the Creator. No more seeking the blessings of redemption without love for the Redeemer. And they come with an empty handed longing, and that longing is met by God's unmerited mercy from today. I will bless you. This is the same empty handed longing that we see from those who come to Christ in their need in the Gospels. And this is amazing. Under the law and the provisions of the law, and Haggai's lesson and the questions he asks, when the, the holy touches the unholy, does the holy make the unholy holy? And the priests say, no, it doesn't. But when something defiles, touches the holy, does that defilement transfer? Yes, it does. Where is the one exception to that rule? 
We see it in the Gospels, don't we? There's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years under the law, perpetually defiled. What can she do about it? In desperation and in faith, in the jostling of a crowd, she reaches out and does the unthinkable, thinking if I could just touch the hem of his garment. Does she make the holy unholy? No, the holy one makes the unholy clean. There's a leper comes and does the unthinkable, a social pariah, comes and falls at the feet of Jesus, just desperate for mercy, desperate, coming in faith, and Jesus does the unthinkable. Luke tells us he reaches out his hand and touches him. Does the Holy One become unclean? No. The unclean becomes clean. When there is no hope for removing the defilement of sin by our own efforts, hope comes in the form of a God who takes on flesh and lives among us. He takes our, our sin upon himself and makes substitution for us. Who ransoms us and imputes unto us his perfect righteousness. The Holy One touched our lives and made us clean. We have received unmerited mercy. And when that, when that becomes the anthem of your heart, unmerited mercy for ruined sinners, that grows. It grows into a devotion that fills our days and our weeks and our months and our years with a careful determination to have Christ I want to have Christ and know Christ, to love Christ and to follow Christ. This is the heart of devotion that Haggai is calling us to. Now you may be here living with the belief, whether conscious or not, that it doesn't really matter where your heart is as long as you do the right things. Or maybe you're living with the belief, conscious or not, that you can become right with God by what you do. Or maybe you're a tired Christian thinking that your acceptance in God's sight only comes in accordance with the measure of your effort. God says through Haggai, I do not want outward forms of religion if I don't have your heart. I want your heart. And child of God, he is pursuing your heart with an uncompromising love. He's doing what he must to help us find in him a greatest treasure and a joy. And he offers a mercy that is unpaid for, unaffordable, and yet more than all our sin. He offers that as the foundation of your security and your love and your devotion today. Because it's only when God's love begins to take hold of your heart that true devotion will flow in your life and your life will be marked by the kind of worship that is pleasing and acceptable and honoring to our great God. Take Haggai's word as a reminder for your hearts today or, or set it in your hearts for the first time today from now on. Let's pray. Lord God, we 
quickly forget the majesty of the cross. It so often becomes commonplace in our lives, your mercy. We sing about it without thinking on on what it means for our lives. So we thank you for the book of Haggai. We thank you for this word today and we pray and ask that you would solidify this in our hearts, that we are loved, that we have received mercy who did not deserve to receive mercy, that we are the people of God who are not worthy of being the people of God. Set that in our hearts, Lord, so that devotion would flow and praise would flow and worship would mark our lives. And as a church, what we do would be pleasing to you. For you are a great God, and we love you. Amen.